Um, I know that for some of you, uh, I've talked with you in person and even during like the interview process, I kind of gave a little bit of my backstory. And some of you know that I grew up about an hour south of Chicago. That kind of explains the Chicago Cubs thing. Um, but when you hear Chicago, some people think, oh, he grew up near the city. But I lived in, like I said, about an hour south. So if you leave Chicago on Interstate 55 on the Stevenson and you're heading south, you'll obviously go through city areas and then it'll get a little bit more suburban. And then there's a moment where it'll go from like suburbs to kind of like industrial. There's all warehouses and that type of stuff. And then it goes from there to like farmland. And that's where I lived, right there at that transition from like suburban manufacturing industrial to farmland like that. That was it. And so I lived close enough to the city that we could go on occasion, like my school would take field trips into the city. Um, we would go there for special occasions. Would, my band would march in the Chicago parades. So we were close enough to participate in the life of the city, but we were still far enough away that it wasn't like you saw it every day. And so I remember growing up and having the opportunity to go to Chicago and you're going north on 55 and you're, you're approaching the city and the challenge, the fun thing, was always to see who could be the first one to see the Sears Tower, right? You could see it from a ways off. You could see the Sears Tower. Now, I know it's not called the Sears Tower anymore. I don't even know what it's called. It was the Sears Tower, then it was the Willis Tower, and now it's something else, but it's, it's the Sears Tower. It's the Sears Tower. Um, it will forever be the Sears Tower. Um, but you'd see it from far off, and it would you know, be booming above the skyline. You could see everything else around it, but there would be the Sears Tower. And then on occasion, you would get to go into downtown. I mean, sometimes we'd be going other places, more along the lakefront or wherever, but sometimes you'd go downtown and you'd go to the Sears Tower. So you've seen it from far off and then you're standing at the base of it. And as a kid, I remember looking up and it just seemed like it went forever. Have you ever stood at the base of a skyscraper and looked up and it just seemed like it was the biggest thing you'd ever seen and that would just go on forever? And the, the, it's kind of wondering how does that even stand, but at the same time being overwhelmed or amazed at how like awe-inspiring this, this thing is. And then every once in a while, um, when my parents would say, yeah, whatever, we'll do it, like we'd pay the money to, to get on an elevator. You'd actually have to pay to go up in a building. But you'd get, pay the money, you'd go up in the elevator, and you'd chew gum on the way so your ears would pop and do all the right things. And you'd get out on the top floor, and you could see forever out of the, the top of the Sears Tower. Um, you could actually see over Lake Michigan into Michigan. Um, and so, and you can see south, you know, the old running joke, I can see my house from here, like that was a real thing. You can see, and this, this one building towered over everything else and you could see, and we talked about how the people and the cars looked like ants and matchbox cars and everything else seemed so small and insignificant, right? And this building just overwhelmed and pretty much dwarfed everything else around it. Now I want you to use your imagination for a moment that you lived 2,000 years ago in a rural village around the Sea of Galilee, a village of a, a couple you know, families, maybe 10 families or so, so a couple hundred people living in this village, a little community that looked out for each other, probably had some, some livestock, maybe did some gardening to provide food, and just kind of in an out-of-the-way type of thing. You weren't you know, big time or anything. But then this Jesus comes along, and maybe you knew him, maybe you didn't, but he, he comes along, and maybe you were fishing, and he says, drop your nuts, follow me, and we're like, yeah, okay, sounds good. Um, so you drop your nets, you quit fishing, you tell your dad you're leaving, tell your mom bye, and you go follow this Jesus around the Sea of Galilee, right? Like you're just kind of in the neighborhood um, around this small little lake or sea. Um, but then there comes this moment where Jesus says, all right, guys, it's time. 
We're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to head to Jerusalem. And now, now as, a, as a Jewish person, you're supposed to go to Jerusalem every year, probably multiple times a year for feast days and, and holidays. You're supposed to go to the temple and worship. But being a poor rural person, you probably didn't have the means to do that very often. You may have never gone. And so when Jesus says, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, this is a big deal. It's not a long journey. It'll take a couple days to get there, but it's a big deal. And so you follow Jesus to Jerusalem and you see the Temple Mount maybe for the first time ever. Um, and I think I have some slides, if I upload them correctly, we'll have, this week's a bit of a blur, so I don't actually remember. This is actually uh, a scale model. This actually isn't the real thing. Um, obviously, because you can't take pictures of the temple that existed 2,000 years ago. But this is the, the Temple Mount. And you can see the, the, the size of it, how it dwarfs everything else around it. And that in the middle, that's the temple. And, and as you get to kind of the, the squares center in, you get to the Holy of Holies, right? And then around it is the city of David. Um, there's the wall. Um, we're looking, um, orientation is probably east to west is uh, right to left. So um, the top of that temple mount is the west. North is facing that way. Anywho, doesn't matter. Um, but it, you can see how the temple mount dwarfs the surrounding areas, right? So you're getting kind of a sense of scale. If we can go to the next so slide, this is one of those walls that was on the, the temple walls. So for scale, those are people, right? So imagine, remember how big that was compared to everything else around it. The wall that was like an inch high on our screen was dominating everything, everything else. That's, that's what that is, 30, 40, 50 feet high, right? And then some of those stones weigh 50 tons, 100 tons. Some of the foundational stones weigh 150 tons, 200 tons, like we wouldn't even know how to move them today. Like it's amazing feat of architecture that just dominates. Um, I had the opportunity to, to be there. This is the Western wall. People are there praying. They write their prayers on little pieces of paper and stick them in the cracks. And they go to the Western wall because it's the closest they can get to where the Holy of Holies once stood, um, the presence of God. And so this is the western wall, but it gives you a sense of scale. And obviously at the top you can see the smaller stones. That's some fixes over the years. Um, but the base is the walls that would have been there in the time of Jesus. And so imagine being this Jewish fisherman, farmer, villager, whatever, and you go into the temple for the first time. You, you, you're literally going up the hill. As you're on your journey, you're going up when the Bible says they went up to Jerusalem, they, they literally went up. It was on a mountain. Like. And so you have psalms that talk about song, psalms of ascent. Um, your Bible might notate that depending on what version you have. Those are actually psalm, songs, psalms that they would sing or read, chant as they were going into the city for their feast days or the holidays. They would literally be going up the mountain um, to the Temple Mount. Now imagine being, that being you 2,000 years ago. You're following Jesus and this temple, this massive structure, much like the Sears Tower was for me, um, this overwhelming, awe-inspiring thing on a scale you've never seen before, it represented the strength of your people, it represented the power of your God, it represented the, the influence of your religion, right? Like this is an announcement to the whole world, this is who we are. And that is the context for our scripture for today. We're in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Again, if you uh, want to follow along the screen, that's great. If you don't have a Bible and want one, feel free to take one from under the chairs, one of those red and blue and green 
Bibles. Those are for you to take home uh, if you need a Bible. Um, But Mark chapter 13, verses one through eight. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see these, all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And Jesus said to them, watch out so that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Uh, Pray with me, if you will. Uh, Father, we are grateful for your word. Um, We are thankful that your word uh, became flesh and dwelt amongst us, that your, your word, your logos, your teaching was embodied in your son as he lived and walked amongst us, teaching us the ways of righteousness, teaching us about who you are, teaching us about your kingdom. May your word be preserved not only in the pages of our Bibles, but in your church who continues to live out that teaching and reveal that kingdom to the world. Uh, We thank you and love you. Amen. So looking at this story, seems like Jesus is kind of a hard guy to impress, right? Like the disciples were looking, they saw this temple mount, the walls that I just had on the screen a moment ago, and they turned to Jesus and said, look at these great buildings, look at these massive stones, this is incredible, have you ever seen anything like this? And Jesus says, meh, this is all coming down. I'm not all that impressed, it's, it's all gonna come down, every single stone, complete destruction. The disciples follow Jesus to Jerusalem and the temple. They are impressed and amazed at this complex system of buildings and ramps and walls and all the opulence. And the temple was designed to cause that exact response. Like that was the purpose behind the temple. I mean, there was other purposes too, but like it was designed specifically to inspire awe, to overwhelm, to communicate strength and power and stability When you looked at it, you're supposed to think, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It's never going anywhere. It's intended to demonstrate wealth and extravagance and the might of the people that built it and the might of the God who was worshipped there. And so there was not to be any doubt that this temple was special. And by uh, association, by connection, those that ran the temple, that ruled the temple, that governed the temple, They were special and important too, right? The temple wasn't just meant to be an impressive feat of architecture though, although it was, it wasn't just that. It was about God. The temple was about God, specifically about how to worship God and who could worship God. The temple represented God's presence, God's voice, God's will in Israel. And over time, to be faithful to God 
was conflated with the idea of being faithful to the temple. They kind of smooshed together. Um, in, in Tabitha's message uh, recently, she talked about the widow and the two coins. This widow gave everything she had to the temple system. And it was understood as giving everything they had to God. And so you can see that this blurring between what was the temple and what was God, that it was, it was just kind of blurred together. So to control the temple was to control people's relationship to God, their access to God. To control the temple was to control religious life of God's people. And so if God was going to fix things, as if you were alive in the time of Jesus and you had this hope that God was going to show up and kick the Romans out and fix everything and, and restore Israel, if you had that hope, you were hoping that God would send this Messiah who was going to come and be installed as the one in charge of the temple, right? Like, He's going to kick all the people out that were wrong, doing the wrong things, and that Jesus would run the temple. That's where the power was. That's where religious life lived. If you're going to be faithful to God, you had to be faithful through your worship at the temple. That was what it was there for. God's chosen leader would be in charge of the temple, the religious systems, and would influence political uh, world as well. I mean, that's the assumption of the people in Jesus' day and age. So if Jesus was going to set things right, he was going to take his place as the Messiah, as you know, properly lifted up as God's son, he would need to wield power and control over the temple. He would need to be involved in the worship at the temple. He would, he would need to be in charge of it, CEO, chief priest of the temple system, right? That's what his disciples saw. They saw these buildings and the structures and they thought, this is what Jesus is here to do. He's going to run this temple, And Jesus looks at all that and says, no, that's all coming down. It's all coming down. Not one stone will be left. Now, it's it's hard to tell what happens next because the gospel of Mark moves quickly. Like if you've been reading along every week as we've been in the sermon series, you see that the, the gospel of Mark just moves from one thing to the next to the next without a whole lot of transition. And this is another one of those things where the story jumps. The next verse says that when Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, um, they started chatting. Now the Mount of Olives is not terribly far away from the temple, but it's not like right across the street either. To walk from the temple to the Mount of Olives, we'll say, is a half hour walk, depending on how quickly and who's in your party and if you have kids that forgot their toys back at the temple and you had to go back and get it and all that stuff. Whatever, there's delays, but it's, it's, it's not like they just immediately were at the Mount of Olives. There was transition. So Jesus was with his disciples. He had told them earlier in the day, the temple's coming down, but it's still weighing in their mind, right? They, they hadn't moved on. They didn't ask him in that moment, but they're still thinking about it. And so when it was quiet and they were away from the crowd, they asked him privately, what's going to happen? Like, when is this going to happen? And how, and how are we going to know? Like, how will we be prepared for this? Because this is a big deal. If the temple comes down, like, that's, that's the end of everything, right? <laughs> this is how we worship God. This is how we know where God is. This is how we have our sins forgiven. This is how we, we, we practice our faith. This is the marker of who we are. And if that comes down, like, we will want to know about it. So when is this going to happen? They were still worried about this statement moments later. And Jesus says to them, watch that no one deceives you. 
So he doesn't directly answer their question, which he never does. If, I would get frustrated with Jesus if I was them because they ask very pointed questions. Hey, what day, what time, what's gonna happen? And he would ask them a question back. Or he'd say, what day, what time, how do we know? And he would say, don't be deceived. But that's what he said. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. And when you hear, these war, uh, hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. <laughs> Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be some earthquakes. There's famines. These are just the beginnings of birth pains. And before we try to make sense of this uh, response by Jesus, because there's a lot there to unpack, before we try to understand all that, we need to put on our Bible nerd hats for a minute, or at least I'll put mine on, because I'm a self-confessed Bible nerd. Um, but we need to put our Bible nerd's hat on for a moment to get some context for what's, what's going on in the life of the church. Maybe not at this exact moment that Jesus is talking. Um, in a few weeks, we will start the Advent season and we'll start looking towards, towards Christmas, right? We know baby Jesus is coming, right? And scholars have narrowed it down. They think Jesus was born somewhere between 4 BC and 6 BC or 6 BC and 4 BC, somewhere in that range. And that he, he died, was crucified around 30 AD. So that's kind of the, the range of his, his life on earth. Um, and so the stories of Jesus' life were remembered and retold by his followers after he was resurrected and ascended to heaven. These little communities of people who had been fed by him, had been healed by him, who had been forgiven by him, they continued to worship and follow him and his teachings even after he was gone. And now we might think, um, because we're enlightenment people, that the gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written, and then given to these communities, and they preached the message, and that's how people joined the church, and that's how things happened. But it's actually the other way around. These churches, these communities of believers who had been following Jesus um, told the stories that Jesus told. They told the stories of how they were saved, how they experienced healing. What they, when, he, when Jesus called them, they, they told the stories, they told the teachings. Um, it wasn't written down as it happened. There was no like documentary thing going on right then. Um, and so they were just these stories in these communities for, for a few generations. Um, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the, these churches, these followers of Jesus, were continuing to tell his stories to repeat this, what would become the Gospels that we know as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, these communities produced the Gospels. And that doesn't mean they made it up. It just means that their stories eventually were the ones that were written down. And scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark was the first one written down, at least in the format that we have today. They have evidence of Mark being kind of this final format that we have today. And scholars are pretty confident that the Gospel of Mark was written, again, in the format that we have today, um, obviously not in English, but um, between the years of 66 and 74 AD, about 30 to 40 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Now I bring all that up to give some context to something else that was going on. So here's these, these early church communities, these followers of Jesus that had been following him. He'd been crucified, they'd, they'd experienced it, they'd heard the stories, they'd been preaching and teaching these stories for 30 or 40 years now. And then something happened in the year 70 AD. 
something significant. So significant that it not only shows up in the history of Israel, but it shows up in the history of the world. Like world histories, empire histories have recorded this, this event as well. In 70 AD, Rome destroyed the temple and most of Jerusalem, leveled it to the ground. And this wasn't just a one-off thing. They just didn't get a, a wild inclination to go and do some damage and show up. This was the result of years of conflict and war between Israel and Rome. This was the conclusion of 30 to 40 years of conflict between Rome and Israel. What would happen is a Roman ruler, a governor, emperor, whatever, somebody that was, had power influence would go to Israel and mess with the temple. They would desecrate it. They'd set up idols. They would dishonor it. They'd do something. And it would rile up the people of Jerusalem. They'd get mad and so they'd rebel. They would protest. They would fight back in various levels. Some people would just announce their protest. Some people would try and physically hurt the Romans. And then Rome would respond with increased force and reassert their presence in the city. It happened time and time again. The temple was dishonored, it was desecrated, the people of Israel revolted, Rome would come and put down the revolt. Eventually things escalated though to a point where it became a legitimate war. History books record it as the first Jewish-Roman war or the Jewish revolt, you can find it under either. And that war came to an end in 70 AD when Rome finally destroyed Jerusalem and the temple with it. So by the time the Gospel of Mark had been written down, the words of Jesus to his disciples seemed to be the headlines from the local newspaper. These great buildings, these amazing stones no longer stood. There had been 30 or 40 years of wars and rumors of wars that led to this. There had been countless leaders in the Jewish community that rose up to, to, to fight the Romans out, to take control of the temple, to, to reestablish themselves as rulers of the people of God. They would fight for the temple. They would fight for the city. And in the end, Jerusalem lay in ruin. The temple lay in ruin. This temple that stood for over 400 years as the symbol, as the representation, as the announcement that God was present in Israel was now destroyed. This temple was the center of religious life. It was the center of their political life. People fought and, and schemed to rule this temple. They, the, the disciples assumed Jesus was going to take control of this temple. The, the, the people believed that Whoever ruled this temple was going to rule their people and rule the country. And, and there was nobody ruling it now. It lay in ruin. It was destroyed. Jesus said the whole thing was coming down and he was right. 30 or so war-filled years after Jesus, the temple is gone. Now if you were a Jewish person in those days, whose hope was in a Messiah that would rule Israel by ruling the temple the destruction of the temple would definitely seem like the end. Like, where do we go from here? This is how we worshiped. This was our government. This was our, our, our way of organizing our life. The teachings of the temple gave us identity, meaning, purpose, all of that, and it is gone. It would seem like an end. The end of hope. The end of God's presence in the nation. The end of your people's identity. The end of your faith. The end of your religion. Just gone. Jesus knew something 
He knew that the temple had become connected with worldly kingdoms. And the people were trying to use it as a, as a tool, as a weapon to fight the fights of worldly kingdoms. And Jesus knew, he knew what happens to worldly kingdoms. They fight. Worldly kingdoms have wars. Worldly kingdoms destroy each other. Jesus told his followers, and this, this is the scripture this week was, was difficult for me as I prepared my sermon, because it was, Jesus just said things so matter-of-factly that I was like, how, what do you do with this? He said, there's going to be wars, but don't be alarmed. He says, don't be alarmed, because this is what worldly kingdoms do. They have wars. This isn't about God. This is about the worldly kingdoms doing what they always do. He says, such things happen. <laughs> when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, such things happen. He says, people will fight other people. Kingdoms will fight other kingdoms. And this always leads to destruction. Jesus knew that if the people of Israel continued to fight worldly kingdoms, the worldly kingdom of Rome, the way that the worldly kingdoms fight, destruction was going to come to Jerusalem and to the temple. He saw it coming. He knew it was going to happen. He says to his disciples, these things will happen. But feel the shift in the story. Right in this moment, he says, these things will happen. But the end is still to come. And what, what that means is this is not the end. <laughs> right? The temple's coming down. These buildings are coming down. Not a stone will stand, but this is not the end. It certainly feels like the end, but this is not the end. The temple will be destroyed, but this is not the end of what God is doing. The city will be destroyed, but this is not the end of God's promises to his people. There will be wars, there will be chaos, there will be new kings and rulers. These things will all happen, but it's not the end. Jesus tells his followers, he said, you're going to get home after a long day of work and flip on the cable news and you're going to hear about wars. You're going to hear about terrible things happening. You're going to watch on your Facebook feed the stones of the temple getting knocked down. You're going to scroll through your, your Twitter timeline and, and see hashtags about the city of Jerusalem burning. You're going to hear how awful these things are. There's wars and rumors of wars. The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem destroyed. He says, you will hear these things, but do not be alarmed. This is not the end. Jesus wanted to teach his disciples a truth, and I, I, I want us to hear that today, and we've got a, a slide that will help us remember this truth. Jesus was telling his disciples, he said, what looks like the destructive end is really just the beginning of the new thing that God is doing. Can you grab a hold of that reality today? This looks like the end. The temple is gone. Jerusalem is gone. What looks like the destructive end is really just the birth pains. It's the beginning of the new thing that God is doing. These are birth pains. There are nations, empires, and kingdoms trying to hold on to their place in the world. That's what kingdoms of the world do. They fight. They try to maintain. They, try, they feel vulnerable. They feel exposed. And so they need to accumulate more power, more wealth, more land, more people, whatever. They feel vulnerable. These are nations doing what nations do. These are worldly kingdoms realizing that they are not eternal kingdoms. Even the most powerful nations and rulers fall and fade and so they fight and they wage war to hold on to that power. But Jesus is inviting his disciples to grab a hold of a truth that empires and kings could not grab a hold of. He invited them to, to accept this truth that is, worldly kingdoms are temporary, 
and ultimately will be replaced by the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God. At some point in the future, God will reign and rule over everything. And Jesus wants his followers to follow him, not those that hold power in those organizations. Follow Jesus, not the chief priests of the temple. Follow God, not the, not the ones that are governors over the city. Don't get caught up in a battle of Jerusalem versus Rome or temple priests versus governors. Don't, don't get caught up in that battle. That will lead you astray. Jesus knows that the leaders will come after him, inviting his followers to join these fights, these wars, to be alarmed, to be outraged, to be angry. Come fight with us. But he tells his followers, do not be deceived by those who confuse worldly kingdoms with the kingdom of God. They're not the same. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. Many will show up waving the name of Jesus. But rather than leading people towards God and and teaching people about the kingdom of God, they will lead people to follow them and their kingdoms. Much like in the days directly following Jesus, the world around us today is filled with wars and rumors of wars, chaos, conflict, struggle. They might give us the appearance that our faith or the hope for our future is nearing an end. Can you believe how awful everything is? This has got to be the end, right? And so we start looking for our hero, our leader, that one who will save us. But Jesus warns us followers to be careful that we're not deceived Because not everyone who says, I am a Christian, I come in Jesus' name, will lead you towards the hope of the kingdom of God. Some might try to lead you in the ways of destruction, ways contrary to the teachings of Jesus. If you had been part of that temple fight, you would have gone down with the temple. For example, I, I don't know how closely you all follow the, the news. I, it's, it's a pendulum for me. There's times where I'm like, I got to know what's going on in the world. So I like jump in both feet trying to figure out what's going on. And then I usually get sick and stressed and anxious about it. And like, that's it, I'm done. I'm not turning the news on for whatever. But somewhere in the middle of that pendulum for me, there was a story that came out a few weeks back. Uh, it was a leak of Facebook documents. Internal documents. They had reports that the company had, had written Um, and somebody leaked these documents out. In the year 2019, of the 20 largest Christian pages on Facebook, so these pages that had the most viewers, most use, most shares, the 20 largest Christian pages, 19 of them were operated by foreign troll farms. Now these, quote, troll farms are people in Eastern Europe, Russia, and other places that create these pages on social media And they put church in the title or Christian in the title or faith in the title. But instead of posting uh, things that would encourage and lift us up, instead of sharing scripture, instead of things, they were posting propaganda intended to distract, misinform, confuse, and divide Americans. It literally was fake news that the church was receiving. They were, these, again, were the largest, 19 of the 20 largest pages. That meant us Christians were sharing them, engaging with them, receiving them wholeheartedly. It was... We trusted it because it came from a source that said church. It came from a source that said Christian. These troll farms that they're called along with Facebook's greed deceived Christians and created chaos and division in the church and in our country. They were trying to manipulate and deceive Christians with wars and rumors of wars. 
They showed up on our Facebook feeds, social media, bearing the name of Jesus, but they weren't Christian and they were not working on behalf of the kingdom of God. And like I said, these were, this, this one little report, and this is just an example, but this report came from, this wasn't like outsiders snuck in and, and, and did this thing, but this was something that they were doing internally. Uh, a man that worked for Facebook who authored this report says this, and I want to share this quote. He says, our platform, meaning Facebook, has given the largest voice in the Christian American community to a handful of bad actors who based on their media production practices have never been to church. The words of Jesus seem very significant as I listen to that, that news report where Jesus says, watch out so that no one deceives you. There are many people that will come, many organizations that will come waving the name of Jesus, but do not be deceived. They're trying to deceive us in an effort to secure power, influence, and wealth. They have an agenda that is not the agenda of God. And it's not a surprise. Politicians have done this for years, right? They, you know, <clears throat> wave a flag, wave a Bible, quote a verse, say God bless America, and expect Christians to line up behind them and give them power and get them elected. That's nothing new. But authors and, and speakers and, and musicians will add Christian to their whatever label that they're doing. I'm a Christian author, Christian speaker, Christian musician, to appeal to a demographic that will celebrate and support them. Buying books, buying albums, attending conferences, attending concerts. But not everybody who says they're a Christian X, Y, or Z, fill in the blank, has an agenda that aligns with the kingdom of God. Sadly, there are churches and pastors whose focus is on worldly power and worldly wealth. They say church on the sign, they say pastor on the business card, they use the words of scripture, they use the words of our faith, but that's not their goal. Not everything labeled Christian actually is. Not every pastor is actually a shepherd of the sheep. Not every church is actually focused on teaching Jesus. Many will show up claiming Christ, Jesus says, but rather than leading people towards faith in God, they lead people away from the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, watch out so you are not deceived. We look out the window of of our lives, we look out at the world around us and see things changing, see things not what they once were. And it makes us nervous. We look at the church's place in the country and it's maybe not what it once was and there are those who would desire to stoke fear and outrage amongst us. There are those who want to use fear and outrage to deceive us, to manipulate us, that will try to convince us that this is the end. It's over. If the temple comes down, God has lost. If the church isn't the center of American life, God has lost. If there's fighting and chaos around us, everything is at risk. There are those symbolically, metaphorically standing on street corners with signs that say the end is near, be afraid, be very afraid. They're telling us we should be panicked and worried and angry and outraged. But Jesus tells us that wars and rumors of wars, conflicts between people, earthquake, famine, plagues, are not evidence that this is the end. <laughs> That's the story we get. Look how bad it is. This has got to be the end. But Jesus looks at that 
knowing that the temple's coming down, knowing that these walls are coming down, and he says, these are not reasons to give up hope. This is not a reason to turn away from faith. This is not a reason to embrace despair because this is not the end. Jesus says these are birth pains. God is at work. God is is bringing about something new. God is at work tearing down corrupted systems. God is at work exposing evil that is hidden in shadows. God is at work replacing worldly kingdoms with the very kingdom of God. God is present and at work. The Bible tells us, this is no secret, the Bible tells us that worldly kingdoms come and worldly kingdoms go. There's only one eternal kingdom according to the scriptures, and that is the kingdom of God. So as we look at the world around us, let us not be deceived by anyone. Let us not be tricked into being fearful or outraged. May we never lose our hope. Let us not enter into despair. Let's not put our trust in worldly kingdoms and worldly kings. May we see clearly that worldly kingdoms are gonna do what worldly kingdoms are gonna do. Temporary kingdoms clinging to power, clinging to status. And so the invitation for today, and like I said, I know this is a a heavy topic and this was a hard text for me to wrestle with today. The invitation for us today is grab a hold of the kingdom of God. Commit to serve that kingdom alone. Worldly kingdoms are gonna come They're gonna make a mess of things, they're gonna fight, they're gonna stir up trouble, they're gonna want you to be on their side, they're gonna cling to power and status. But the kingdom of God is the one that is eternal. It has no end. I was sharing the story a a few days ago. When I was in high school, we had a research paper in English class, so we had to go to the library and, and research stuff, and it was our first big paper in high school, so went to the librarian, the librarian was making a big deal, this was probably 1995-ish maybe, Um, the librarian was making a big deal that we had computers, lots of computers in the library. And they were all connected to this thing called the internet. And she was telling us, we can still get books off the shelves, we can still find books using the card catalog thing with the wooden drawers, you guys remember that. Um, But there's something significant happening and she, she gathered my whole class together and said, your generation He's going to have to learn a skill that's going to be critical for you to survive. Like, so this is why I remember it some whatever years later, because this seemed important. She said, for all of human history, gaining knowledge, gaining information, the challenge has been access to it, right? You had libraries in, in, in places. There was wise teachers that you had to get near to get their information, like there was these schools of thought and, and you would have to get near them and, uh, to have access to this information. The challenge was always getting information to you. She said, though, with these computers, with this internet, that's no longer the problem. She said, your generation will have more information than you know what to do with. The challenge no longer is getting information, it's getting good information and knowing how to tell the difference between good information and bad information. And that, that lecture, that, that lesson about learning how to decipher what is good and bad information is, is what our church is, is being challenged with us today. Like that's what's challenging us as a church today. We must get so familiar, so uh, knowledgeable about the values and the teachings of the kingdom of God that the worldly kingdom stuff is so obvious and apparent. Right? That we cannot be deceived and, and tricked and manipulated by fear and outrage. 
May we get so familiar with the values and teachings of Jesus that we can discern the difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. May we commit to serving kingdom of God and King Jesus. May we not be distracted or deceived by those using fear or outrage. And more importantly, can we, may we see God at work all around us. May we continue to put our hope and trust in the kingdom of God. The temple fell. The walls came down. This is the end, right? What can we possibly do without the temple, the people of Jesus' day were asking. But even if the temples fall, even if the walls fall, the kingdom of God is forever. So commit to serving that kingdom 